On page 1046 of the Church Bibles, that's where you'll find it, and it will be Luke 13, 10 to 17. That's 1046. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for eighteen long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Thanks very much indeed, Darren. Let's, uh, let's pray as we come to God's word together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your word to us in the Bible, your word about the Lord Jesus. And we pray now that you'd be our teacher. Please teach us of him, that we might know what it is to love him, to be loved by him, and to love like him. For his name's sake. Amen. Now, are you a train talker? Well, what I mean by that is, are you one of the people who gets on, on the train and chats to others? I mean, obviously not on the commuter train, because, I mean, that would get you arrested. But do you get on a train, you know, one of those long journeys, and there's a table, you sit down, there are other people around the table, do you talk to them? Um, I, it might suffice you know, I'm a train talker, and uh, not so long ago on a train to Preston, I got chatting to the people around the table, and uh, opposite me was a, a woman who it transpired was nursing, she was an Asian woman, nursing the Bible teacher John Stott in a home for retired clergy. And then, and then sitting beside her was a young man, and he told me he'd played football with some Christian mates at, at a church football team, and he used to go on Christian camps in Hangothlen, but he, he, he wasn't really very interested anymore. And then beside me, the woman said, that's funny, this, this older woman, she said, I used to teach in Sunday school. But, but I, don't, I don't really believe it anymore. I've given up on my faith. Now, in my trade, this is what you call an opportunity. <laughs> so what I did is I opened up my Saturday Telegraph and settled down to read the sports pages while they got on and chatted about church. And then after a while, as my guilt increasingly mounted, I thought I'd better join in. Uh, the topic had changed to something I felt I could really contribute on. Rugby players and their lovely legs. So I chipped in. What, why is it that we find it so hard to talk about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why is it that we find that so hard? We sing great truths about him. We declare them on a Sunday. And then we just find them so hard to share. 
it might be a question of confidence. We certainly live in a culture, don't we, where increasingly Christians are persecuted, where the authorities seem to be standing against them, where even the established church says that believing the Bible is an odd thing to do. But actually, that's not new. Luke's gospel is written exactly into a culture like that. The reason that Luke writes his gospel is that he wants to reassure a man called Theophilus that what he believes about Jesus is true. This is what Luke says at the beginning of his book. Luke chapter 1 verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so you may the certainty of the things you've been taught. You might be certain, so certain that you'll act on them. So certain that they're not just things that you sing, but things that you do. They're not just things that maybe you say, oh yeah, I believe that, but they're things that shape the very pattern of your life day in, day out. That's what Luke wants for Theophilus. And so he writes Luke and Acts, two chapters, two books to to do that. And we're coming to a section in the middle of Luke. It's a section that starts in chapter 9, 51, where we read that the Lord Jesus Christ sets out resolutely for Jerusalem. It seems like madness, because we know that in Jerusalem, he is hated by the religious leaders. He is, in fact, deliberately setting out to his own death. That is going to be the heart of Luke's message, that Jesus has come to die for people who have rejected God because there is a God who loves them, and to rise again that they might have a new life with him. And in that section from 9.51 right through to the end of chapter 19, we see Jesus declare the news of his kingdom. It's a kingdom that you can come into by turning, by repenting from living with yourself as king to seeing that Jesus is God's glorious king. And as you do that, you receive the forgiveness of your sins, the forgiveness for all the ways you have failed to love God and other people. And extraordinarily, despite the quality of that message, the beauty of that message, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the synagogue leaders, the the very ones who should have been experts in God's promise that one day the Messiah would come, someone who looked an awfully lot like Jesus in the Old Testament, the beautiful rescuing king, they're angered by what Jesus has to say. They reject him. And so what we're looking at is a section where we see the the beauty of the Lord Jesus, but also the rejection of Christ by the religious establishment. And the question for us this morning as as we come to that is, do we have this Jesus-centered faith that Theophilus has been taught? Do we believe what Christ has come to do for us to the extent it transforms our lives? Or do we have a self-centered religion that is like the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day? So first, let's see what Jesus is like, because Jesus gives freedom. That's the first thing to see this morning. Jesus gives freedom. Look at chapter 13 again in verses 10 and 11. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who'd been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. 
The Sabbath day was the day when the Jews would gather to hear the scriptures taught in the synagogue, to to discuss them. And this woman had kept coming week by week, despite the pain. I talked a few years ago in our last church to an old woman who was literally doubled up in agony. Her back bows, her her shoulders are, are hunched. She struggles to sleep because of the pain. It's painful to get up in the morning, painful to get downstairs for breakfast, painful to sit in the chair. It's painful with modern medicine. I can't imagine what the pain in this woman's life must have been like. But she still made it to synagogue every week. And notice that Luke tells us it's a a spirit afflicting her. Oh, this is no normal ailment. Now, because you're probably thinking it, let me say there is no link between your personal sin and your spiritual state. In other words, it's not if, say, today you've got a cold, that came upon you because God's visiting judgment on you for the way you gossiped about your neighbor last week. That's not the way it works. But in the Bible, God is very clear that the reason that there is sickness and pain and suffering in the world is because of a spiritual problem. It's because we're part of a humanity that has wholeheartedly rejected God, and he has placed us all under a curse because of that. And Jesus has come to deal with that curse. He's come to reverse not just our relationship with God back to restoration, but our relationship with the whole created order restored so that one day when Jesus returns, we will enjoy a world without sickness and suffering where no one will be bent double in pain. But that world has not yet come. But Jesus has come. And look what he does in verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you're set free from your infirmity. It's so simple, isn't it? Jesus sees her suffering. She she doesn't come to him for healing. In grace, he takes the initiative. And in his tenderness, he calls her over. In love, he calls her. Uh, There's no great struggle, is there? There's no all-night prayer meeting. There's no singing and swaying rhythmically and asking her repeatedly whether she feels well. No, just the unstoppable power of Jesus Christ. He simply says to her, you're free. And her daily struggle against spiritual bondage and pain stops. Verse 13, then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. You bet she did. The relief, the, the joy the freedom now Jesus is the freedom giver he is the one who sees people in their brokenness in their pain in their suffering and he acts to free them in Luke he's called repeatedly the savior but actually that word can equally be translated the healer And while Jesus is here on earth, he shows us that his kingdom will be one where all the products of sin will be destroyed. Sickness, suffering, and eventually death, gone forever. Jesus is the one who's come to set us free from them all. He achieves that by heading to the cross. That's where he's going at this stage of Luke. Because at the cross, he bears in his body all of our sin. And actually the Bible says in Isaiah he bears all of our infirmities, all of our sorrows, all of our suffering. And he dies for it. 
He, he takes the punishment that we deserve. So he frees us from all the shame and guilt that we feel about the past. He takes sin upon himself. So he frees us from our slavery in the moment to selfishness and unkindness so that in the power of his spirit indwelling within us, we can begin to be transformed into people who genuinely love one another. And he frees us from fear about the future, that slavery of anxiety and worry, because we know that we are following a God who has our times in his hands, and we know where our times are going to end up, in a perfect new world beyond death, a world we will enjoy forever with him. There's no one else who can free you. If if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, there is no one else who can free you. And if you are here and you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the life you were created for. So, So don't go back to enslaving yourself with guilt from the past and don't enslave yourself with desires of selfishness in the present and don't enslave yourself to anxiety about the future with dreams that have nothing to do with the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come to set you free, a glorious freedom. A freedom of knowing that you're loved by God despite who you are today and every day and every day and every day forever. And that's quite a long time. Now, if you're not a Christian here, would you like to know this freedom? Because Jesus sees you and he calls you to himself and he offers you freedom through his own death on your behalf and we'd love to tell you about that freedom to give you the opportunity to know that freedom just just talk maybe to a Christian friend you've come with maybe to David or me after the service there is freedom on offer today But, but here's the thing if we know this freedom isn't this what we should long for every single human being we ever meet but this this synagogue ruler He's not really very impressed with Jesus setting people free. Because here's the second thing we're going to see. We're going to see self-centered religion. And he shows us, firstly, it's heartless. Look at verse 14 with me. Indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. It's a strong word, actually. It shatters the scene of of love and tenderness. Can you imagine? People are so excited. This woman is standing up straight, and suddenly this man is angry. He's he's not just a, a bit upset. He is angry. He is truly hacked off. And it's Jesus that he's angry with. Not that he has the courage to speak to Jesus. Do you know do you know people who do that? You know, they're a bit upset with someone over here. They're angry with, say, Jason this morning. So what they do is they address the whole body of the people loudly so he can hear. Jesus, no, I can't be bothered to talk to you, but let me tell everyone else in the room what I want to say to you. And of course, she hadn't even come to be healed. There's not an ounce of compassion in this bloke. He doesn't care about this woman's agony in one one for one little bit. And, and do you know, this, this, is, this guy's like her pastor. He, he's watched her for the last 18 years struggle to get to synagogue. He's seen her suffering more than anyone else. And yet, she is a member of his flock. 
who's limped along each week to hear him teach the scriptures. He doesn't care. He's got his head shoved so far up his own Bible study, he's lost sight of the purpose of the scriptures. In fact, he's lost sight of everything that the Sabbath was supposed to be for. It was supposed to be the day when the Jews remembered God setting them free. Freedom from slavery in Egypt back in the Old Testament. Freedom to live in God's promised land. Freedom to be his people and and know they were loved by him. That was what Sabbath was all about. There's nothing more appropriate than setting someone free on the Sabbath. But this man doesn't care about this woman. He just cares about her doing what she wants. Her conforming to his religious rules. Rules that he doesn't even keep himself. Because look, here's the second thing. Self-centered religion is hypocritical. Look what Jesus points out in verse 15. Jesus answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? You probably know the, the word hypocrite or hypocrisy comes from the Greek word for mask. In an ancient Greek play, you didn't sort of have character actors like Meryl Streep or Robert De Niro. What you did is you got a mask that represented your part, you stuck it over your face, and you said your lines. Even I could act like that. And so to be a hypocrite is to hide behind a mask in life. To have one set of behavior outwardly, but another set inwardly for yourself. So the synagogue ruler is very keen on rigid Sabbath keeping as long as it doesn't affect him. And the way he'd written the rules, of course, meant that he could look after his ox or donkey, but they got treated better than this crippled woman. In the end, his religion was a a matter of personal convenience. One set of rules applied to him, and one set of rules applied to everyone else. He cared more about his cow than a cripple, more about his possessions than the lost. The uh, the American pastor Mark Driscoll tells a great story of being taken to a gay bar by a gay friend, a friend from college he'd not seen for a while, and what an uncomfortable experience it was for him as a pastor. He was worried that members of his church would see him going into the bar or coming out of the bar. At one point, the the high school friend had to to leave him for a while at the bar, and uh, a a guy came over to talk to him, and he found himself blurting out, as an introduction, I'm a married woman, and I'm a married man to a woman, I'm here with a friend. What made it worse was that the guy kept talking to him and appeared to be hitting on him at the bar, chatting him up. And slowly Driscoll felt he recognized the man. He he asked him, "Are are you a male man? And the guy said, yes, I am a male man. And it transpired that this was Driscoll's postman chatting him up in the gay bar. Later, that, uh, they went upstairs to a meeting of the gay rodeo committee, which Driscoll said suspiciously reminded him of one of his elders' meetings. <laughs> now, doubtless, there are, are loads of good reasons why you might think that it was a, a silly place for Mark Driscoll to go. But actually, the point that he makes is he cared less about the salvation of the people in that bar than he did about conforming to what his church thought he should do. He didn't love them. He loved himself. And you'll find nothing in the Bible about not going to a gay bar. You might find things about the way that you relate to one another sexually and the appropriate place for sex within marriage between a man and a woman. But there's nothing about what people think of you and who you hang out with. Driscoll writes... That night I learned that mission requires that Christians and their churches move forward on their knees, 
continually confessing their addictions to morality and the appearance of godliness, which does not penetrate the heart and transform lives. I've had evangelistic conversations where I've been more concerned about being right than the other person's relationship with Jesus. As long as I win, it's what God wants. It happens, doesn't it, when we we judge all the non-Christians around us. So actually we, we sound like we're more interested in them being straight or being sober or being celibate or not shopping on Sundays than we're interested in them coming to know Jesus. We obviously wouldn't be crass enough to put it that way, but that's what our attitudes seem to say. It happens when we care more about our possessions and the lost. So we worry about our car breaking down with more emotional passion than we worry about the broken lives of our neighbors. We worry about having a good pension than, more than we worry about the plight of people around us who don't know Christ. We'll move heaven and earth to watch the football or enjoy the sunshine, but we don't make the same effort about non-Christians and getting them under the sound of the gospel. And every time we do that, we show we don't really believe this. It's for us. Do you know what I I think? I worked out this morning, I was standing in the shower, that's where I do my best thinking, and I suddenly realized the thing that I've probably applied most physical, emotional effort, sweat and tears into over the last six months, fitting the new bathroom. If I had applied as much energy into evangelism as fitting the bathroom, maybe I'd have brought more people to hear of Christ. Jesus, the, Jesus says, you hypocrites. God gives us a great mission field and we run out of it. We don't love the lost people we live, work and play amongst. We judge them and we ignore them. And the last thing you see is self-centered religion is blind. That's probably why we do it. Look at verse 16. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Look, if you're willing to feed your dog on a Sunday, shouldn't this woman be given her freedom? She sees as much a a child of Abraham, Jesus says to the synagogue ruler, as you, as much one of God's children. And freedom here is freedom from Satan. That's what everyone in the world needs. Because in the end, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a slave of the devil. You follow him. Why? Because since Genesis 3, the devil has convinced people of some simple lies. One, you can be God in your own life. Two, life's much better than like that. Three, God doesn't care you've made that decision. And you're enslaved to those lies. And those lies are the reasons we have a world like we have, are the reasons why people have lives like they have. And people need to be freed from those lies, that slavery. The problem is, of course, that our bondage to Satan is not always visually distressing. I mean, this woman, we could see her walking in. I hope if she walked into our church, someone might have taken her by the arm. They might even have given her one of the comfy seats at the back. We would have seen her and cared for her. But, but the thing is that most people who are slaves to Satan don't look any different to us. In fact, sometimes... They have all the things we secretly want for ourselves. See, we might be moved by the drug, uh, drunk or drug addict begging 
outside the station, uh, the disabled man waiting for his carer in the shop, but we're rarely moved by people's spiritual needs. They don't come swathed in chains. The devil's very much more subtle than that. He enslaves people with the desire for popularity, the desire for security, the desire for acceptance. Uh, Sometimes it seems they're enjoying their freedom more than us. I mean, they're not sitting in a big hall on a hot Sunday morning. They're sitting on the beach now. They're doing what we want to do. But the truth is, we'll never really rejoice in the freedom Jesus offers until we see how much people are slaves without him. It's only when we take God's word seriously and accept the warnings of the Bible that slavery to sin and Satan is worse than being physically doubly bent over for 18 years every day of your life. Do you, do you, know, did you have this experience yet where, where your children are a bit more brutal and realistic than you are? We have that from time to time. A few years ago, uh, when our older children were a, little, a lot younger, uh, the youngest, who was about seven at the time, suddenly asked uh, over a, an evening Bible study, uh, does our uncle believe in Jesus? Um, no, no, I don't think so. Love is what my wife replied. And he just came straight out with the next line. Mummy, that means he's going to hell. We must pray for him. Problem is, I knew their uncle. I knew where he stood with Christ. I didn't particularly pray for him. There wasn't much urgency in my heart when I saw him. Because I was worried about what he thought of me. Because I was worried about what his family thought of me. And because I was taken in by his Surrey lifestyle, his detached house and his big garden and his nice car and his friendly smile. Then he died, aged 59. I got his handkerchief in my pocket. I just noticed that this morning I was coming out. His wife gave me his handkerchiefs. Got his letter, the initial of his name on. I haven't got a clue where he is. But I fear he showed no evidence that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ in his lifetime. And the biggest barrier to my evangelism is not that I'm not confident in the gospel. It's not that I can't explain it, though you might decide that for yourself this morning. The biggest barrier is my character. See, God's called me into a people to declare his praises to the world around him. To show his unconditional, unchangeable, faithful love to the people I live amongst. A love that he has littered my life with. And the problem? Well, look look at verse 17 as we finish. When Jesus said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And I am delighted with all the wonderful things Jesus has done for me. But I am heartless. Because I see people... And I'm more worried about myself. And I'm a hypocrite. Because I get more irritated by people not doing what I want than I'm more concerned about people knowing Christ or not. And most of the time I'm blind to people's spiritual needs. And so I seek my agenda for my life. Come back this evening, I'll tell you a little bit more about how the Lord's done business with me over the last week on that. But just as I finish, do you remember what we're about? We're about praying because God works through us. 
Do you know what? We are God's plan for Chessington. And so we need to have a deep heart for the people around us. And we're about going because people need to hear of Jesus. Do you see? Without him, their deepest needs are not met. So we mustn't be hypocrites and set up things that will stop them coming to know him. And we're about inviting because nothing beats knowing Jesus. And that means nothing is worse than not knowing Jesus. And we mustn't be blind to that. I hear people using expressions like people will suffer a lost eternity or an eternity without Christ. And that is true, but that is not what the Bible calls it. You won't find a lost eternity in the Bible. You will find hell. You will find everlasting destruction. You will find a place of constant experience of the wrath of God. So would you pray? Would you pray with me? that we might be freedom givers like our Lord Jesus. We might be freedom givers by making him known. Shall we pray together? Our Father in heaven, we come to your table, to the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, the place you've given us to be reminded of the cost of the freedom that is ours in him, the blood shed, the body broken, that all of our sin and suffering of pain was borne by him. Our Father, please fix our eyes on that glorious freedom. Fix our eyes on his unquenchable love. Fix our eyes upon all that he has done for us and change our hearts in your grace that we might be those who have a heart for others who in no way are hypocritical but in compassion long to share our own brokenness but most importantly share Christ because we see people as they truly are enslaved and in desperate need of him. And we pray it for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.